Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome in to a special edition of Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here with you, brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We've got a special edition of the podcast this week. It's part one of our recent salute to the 50th anniversary of MASH. And we'll have part one for you this week and part two next week. So let's uh, go back in time and remember the debut of MASH. September 17th, 1972, Richard Nixon was well on his way to re-election. North Vietnam released three American POWs, including future Maine congressional candidate Markham Gartley. The Godfather ruled the box office. The best-selling book was Richard Bach's Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And the number one song of the Billboard charts was Three Dog Nights' recording of Black and White, a song written back in 1954 to commemorate the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus the Board of Education. And on CBS television, a new series created by Larry Gelbart made its debut. Based on the 1970 film, which itself was based on Richard Hooker's 1968 book, MASH followed a team of doctors, nurses, and support staff at a mobile army surgical unit in South Korea during the Korean War. Now, despite the success of the film, journalist Mark Freeman says the network wasn't quite sure what they were getting, so they hedged their bets. CBS, more or less, I believe, had very little, if any, expectations because they were, there was a series which I didn't know about till all this research came up that um, Anna and the King, Gil Brenner, uh, was doing a half an hour kind of sitcom version of the movie. <laughs> and they were banking on that one in truth. Uh, MASH as a movie had kind of galvanized people and they had reacted to it and they thought built in film audience. But they didn't think this was a slam dunk and didn't necessarily have expectations. And they gave Anna and the King the big stage on Fox Lot. And they gave MASH the small stage, which kind of shows you their belief in it. Um, and it, it, it's one of those stories, and you'll hear this on certain Cheers is another great example, a, a show that didn't do so great in part because people weren't aware of it, bad time slot. But when the summer reruns come around and at that time, that's all there were. There wasn't any mm. summer programming. People discover it. And then, then you throw it into that Saturday night CBS lineup, which is probably the best lineup of, uh, of television in the history of television. And you stick it in the middle of that. And then everybody is going to just, react to it and turn like a magnet. The cast was led by Alan Alda, an actor perhaps best known as the son of Robert Alda, and for his role as George Plimpton in the film Paper Lion. Wayne Rogers, who had appeared in shows like Gunsmoke, The FBI, Gomer Pyle, and Stagecoach West, played Trapper John. Loretta Swid, who had roles on Hawaii Five-O, Mannix, and Mission Impossible, played head nurse Margaret Hotlips Houlihan. McLean Stevenson, who had worked in the political world for his cousin Adlai, had written for the Smothers Brothers and played Doris Day's boss in her self-titled sitcom, played company commander Colonel Henry Blake. And Larry Linville, who had appeared on Mission Impossible and as a recurring character on Mannix, played surgeon, inept surgeon, Frank Burns. Rounding out the ensemble were Gomer Pyle veteran William Christopher, and Gary Berghoff, who had played Charlie Brown on Broadway, reprised his role as Radar in the feature film. Along with Gelbart, who had written for Sid Caesar, Danny Thomas, and Bob Hope, among others, the creative team also featured director Gene Reynolds. And Mark Freeman says the two made a formidable pair. So Gene brought all of the television experience. Um, he, he was very adept, and he started as a child actor and eventually gravitated over to shows like MASH and then Lou Grant, and, and he, he knew how to um, direct, and he knew how to put a, sh a, a show together, but he was not a writer, and he really, in that sense, was mostly a producer, although he had done directing prior to. Larry Gelbart, meanwhile, is a friend of his, and, and he had hit somewhat of hard times, which is hard to imagine mm -hmm. knowing his career, but he was in London working on, I believe, the Marty Feldman show that they had over there. And 
the two of them just got together and, and spent time in London. Gene flew over to talk about it and figure out, is this doable? How will it be? What kind of tone do we go for? And you'll notice, obviously, when they both leave, the tone starts to shift, and then it, it, it's a huge arc by the end of the show from where it started, uh, with the idea that we can't trust people to know where to laugh on Larry's writing, so we'll put in that laugh track, and so on, to, to you don't need a laugh track when it's a true dramedy in the last years. Freeman explains that another key to the show's ultimate success was Burt Metcalf, who wore a variety of hats through the years. They list him, and when I say they list him, if you talk to anybody from MASH, there there is a triangle that serves as the foundation of the show, and we just talked about two of them, and Burt's the third. And what's interesting about Burt is another child actor and a close friend of Gene. And Gene, and then he became a casting director in the 60s. And Gene brought him on to MASH. He gave him a choice of, because Gene was also handling Anna and the King, and he gave um, Bert the choice of which show to do. And and Bert clearly rolled the dice and got seven or 11 on that one. (laughs) So he comes in as a casting director, so there's already a connection to the cast. and, And then he learns how a show's made, and he's there with Gene. He's there in the writer's room. He's there producing. And Gene recommended him, and CBS listened uh, um, when he and Larry left, that Bert could take over the show. And um, Bert had no experience running a show, but he knew everybody then, by then, were in you know, number five or so. And so he was the showrunner uh, till the end of the series. So he's really outside of cast members, um, the only person behind the scenes of note who lasts the entire run of the show. Burt Metcalf passed away earlier this year and was remembered fondly by Mike Farrell, who joined the series in season four as B.J. Honeycutt. Oh, Burt was, you know, you have you have beams in a ceiling, you have mainstays in, in, their, in the world. Um, Burt was uh, solid. I, I, I'll tell you a story. Um, Burt was the casting director before he was an actor and then he was a casting director. He knew all sides of the business, but he was a casting director at universal. Um, when I was under contract there in the early seventies and, um, we knew each other slightly. And I remember the one day running into him on the, on the lot. And, uh, he said, Oh, I just wanted to say goodbye. And I said, goodbye. Where are you going? He said, I'm going over to 20th. I'm going to do a show over there. I said, oh, good for you. That's great. And off he went. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we did, we had no contact subsequently until, well, I guess it would have been two or three years later when I was uh, asked to come over and meet about the possibility of joining the cast of MASH. And, uh, and um I, I think of that a lot. Uh, I was with Bert when he got sick and um, spent some time with him at the hospital in his last days. And I remember saying, um, typically Bert, typically generous of this guy who was, at that time, was afraid he was, I shouldn't say afraid, felt that he was dying. And I said, you know... Um, I want to say again, thank you for opening me to providing for me the one of the great experiences of my life and, and certainly the highest experience of, of my career. And uh, I said, it's, 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 I owe it to you. And he said, and he wasn't able to talk much, but he looked me in the eye, shook his head negatively, and pointed at me and said, no, it was you. Wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I will never forget that. And I'll never forget him. I mean, we were friends. Uh, on the set, but we were friends afterward. All of us remained close. And um, Bert was the kind of the mainstay. He was the he was the 
the beam holding up the rafters, I guess. A stellar cast and a tremendously talented creative team, but that was not enough to make MASH an immediate hit. We'll learn about that when our salute to MASH's 50th anniversary continues. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Pierce, is there anything I can do to help? It's the first time I cried since I came to this crummy place. I don't understand that. Well, Gillis was your friend. I mean, it's only natural that you'd, uh, you know. Henry, I know why I'm crying now. Tommy was my friend and I watched him die and now I'm crying. watched guys die almost every day. Why didn't they ever cry for them? Because you're a doctor. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. If I had the answer, I'd be at the Mayo Clinic. Does this place look like the Mayo Clinic? Look, all I know is what they taught me at command school. There are certain rules about a war. And rule number one is young men die. And rule number two is doctors can't change rule number one. You believe that? I don't know. Do you? I don't know, but I know one doctor who can keep one young man from dying in one war. Major Houlihan? This is Private Wendell Peters of the United States Marines. Except Wendell's name is really Walter, and he's only 15 years old, and he's going back home where he belongs. Put a guard on him and give him to the MPs as soon as he's well enough to travel. You double-crosser. I'm never going to forgive you for this. Not for the rest of my life. Let's hope it's a long and healthy hate. MASH was not an immediate rating success and was a bit hard to pin down. While it was certainly a comedy, the writers and producers also dealt with the realities of war. As evidenced by season one episode, Sometimes You Hear the Bullet. Mark Freeman. You know, when you talk to people and you don't want to lead the witness, you kind of say, hey, what are some of your favorite episodes? And you don't want to say your one favorite because that's kind of insulting in a way. Mm. But uh, a lot of them... From in terms of the people behind the scenes, brought that episode up. And it was the first kind of uh, grim result of, of uh, a, a close friend of Hawkeye's um, dying. So, so now it's like somebody that you kind of know or, or that you have empathy for because it's connected to the main character. And uh, I'll say this, when, uh, when I talked to Bert and I had numerous conversations with him, there were a couple times he cried, uh, and that was one of them. And and it was just very emotional to him uh, about uh, what that represented. And obviously, he looked back on it uh, nostalgically and favorably, but it, it still touches him 50 years later, and, and I found that amazing. The series filmed primarily in two locations, an outdoor set in the mountains near Malibu, California, and on Stage 9 at the Fox Studios in Century City. From the start, it was a unique experience for the actors, who bonded right on the first day of shooting, according to Loretta Swit. The first day we all met was magic. I mean, everybody loved everybody. It was real cold. We were out at the ranch. I remember Wayne was blue, and he was so cold, and his nose was dripping and freezing. He had like a little icicle on his nose. I mean, it was just unbelievable. It was 5 in the morning. He's standing there shivering in a Hawaiian shirt. (laughs) So we were all cuddling, and I do believe the body temperatures and the cuddling made it impossible for us not to get close to each other. (laughs) And... uh, uh, but 
there was, I think, the magic of of the stories and and what we were doing uh, that really nailed the bonding in a special way when you're working on something that that eventually gets the Humanitas Award. I mean, when you're working on that kind of level where the writers are just so outstanding, you got to have the words. I mean, I'm not saying the actors weren't wonderful. We were, but got to have the words. You don't do that on your own. Nothing actually in anything is achieved by one person or one group. It's, it's a real communal effort. And, um, uh, and we had that. Mark Freeman says the cast gatherings were a key to the show's success. Obviously, the fact that they are still in contact, all the surviving members, uh, and they have this MASH email thread where they tell each other things that are going on, um, that connection is still there. And, and you find that in shows, other shows that I've done, Cheers, Frasier, uh, uh, West Wing, you find that connection because you're spending so much time time together. But in a lot of those, um, people do go back to their trailer. Uh, Modern Family, another one that I had done, they went, I was on set all the time and they would go back to their trailer. Sometimes they'd sit down. It just kind of depended on what was going on. But, but in MASH, they would set up seats uh, kind of like the way I envision it is like director's chairs uh, somewhat encircled and they would talk to each other. And, and Alan thought that was a really important process. Um, he, he told it to me. I told him my wife teaches middle school drama, and he's like, tell her to do this. And, uh, <laughs> and then I saw him on an uh, interview for a uh, background for West Wing, same thing. He was saying about that idea of if you really want to know somebody and really want to get together, you spend that off time together um, because it, you'll, it, you'll see that on screen. And also you get to know people who are cool people, so there's that too. While not a member of the cast in the premiere, veteran actor Jamie Farr would join early in season one, playing Corporal Max Klinger in what was originally designed to be a one-shot deal. I had done a, uh, a one-day job on the show F Troop. Oh, right, uh, with, with Gene Reynolds directing, right? Gene Reynolds directing High Averback, I think, was one of the producers <laughs> of that show, if I remember correctly. At any rate, uh, Gene, uh, I, I played a stand-up comic Indian who was auditioning for the Hakawi <laughs> tribe. Uh, they were going to have a big uh, powwow, you know. <laughs> and they gave me all of the one-liners, uh, terrible Henny Youngman and uh, Milton Brill one-liners. He said, take my wife, please. Take my squaw, please. You know, all those kind of jokes. <laughs> And uh, they, uh, the punchline was the uh, chief comes to me, and says, don't smoke signal us, we'll smoke signal you. And I said, don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> well, Gene liked me, and he, he used to have a little black book. And if you liked an actor, he'd write the name of the actor in the black book. So when this character, uh, this smash had started, uh, I think this was like the fourth show into the first year of the series, um, Larry Gelbart had come up with his character that uh, that he uh, got from a uh, Lenny Bruce situation where mm. usually they had um, they had you know a dress of the day uh, for your fatigues or your class A and Lenny Bruce I think was in the Coast Guard at that time so jokingly he showed up in a dress and uh, Larry Gelbart said hey what a great idea that is for somebody trying to get out of the army so I just had uh, four four or five lines in the show. It was, uh, I think the fourth show of the season, it was called Chief Surgeon Who. And uh, he named me Klinger after his childhood friend in, in Chicago. And uh, and so um, I, I came on the show, I had four lines. I think I got uh, 200, uh, I think it was 250, $250 <laughs> for the day. And I thought, you know, nothing of it. I thought, okay, this is one of my famine times too, because I was out of work. And they called me back. They called me back, I think, three times. The part of Klinger was written broadly, and it was Farr who made the choice to play the role straight. They had a director that had me doing it in a different way, and then and, and Gene had called me back to, to reshoot whatever it was. And he says, how would you play this? I said, why don't you just play it absolutely straight? Let everybody else make the comments, and that give them a cigar, 
And that is, <laughs> most of the time, uh, whenever any guys dressed up in, in women's garb, they usually uh, were in a disguise of some sort. I said, this way, he's not in a disguise. He just, <laughs> this is him. This is the way, he, this is his, he's, it's his placard for the verb, verbal stuff that the Hawkeye and the Trapper were doing. This is, this was my showing the way that I wanted to get out of the Arby. He said, okay, try it. Despite the level of talent involved in the production, the show was in trouble after season one. Jamie Farr explains. We were number 57 out of 65 shows. <laughs> we were on Sunday night opposite Wonderful World of Disney. And it was uh, Bill Paley was going to cancel it. And Mrs. Paley said, you know, I like the show. Why don't you just change it to another time spot? So he said, okay. So he changed it to that Saturday night lineup, which became the greatest night in the history of television. Yeah. Uh, All in the Family, MASH, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, and the Carol Burnett yeah. Show. And uh, that's what saved the uh, the series. That falls right in line with how these kind of things happen. Um, Fred Silverman, there's some stories about him um, during the process of it, um, about contract negotiations. So you'll find weird and odd things. But really, if if the wife, the head of CBS says, hey, this, I like this, then, you know, unless it's something that's really going to cost him and the network money, he has nothing to lose, really, if you think about it. The move to a new night following the smash All in the Family helped MASH move into the top 20 in the ratings, a position it would maintain for the duration of the show's run. When we come back, cast changes for season four as we salute the 50th anniversary of MASH. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Radar, put a mask on. If that's my discharge, give it to me straight. I can take it. I have a message. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake's plane was shot down over the Sea of Japan. Spun in. There were no survivors. Another turning point in the MASH story came as season three wrapped up, when it was clear that Wayne Rogers and McLean Stevenson were exploring the possibility of moving on. Loretta Switz says for Stevenson, it was a matter of wanting to be number one on the call sheet. I would expect the producers uh, try to talk him out of it because, you know, he was so valuable. I mean, he really was, he was the guy who took off with the show. I mean, Mac won just out of the gate. He won a Golden Globe. I mean, and uh, we were very close friends. Mac, in fact, asked me to receive the award for him, mm. which was great. You know why? You receive an award for somebody else. You can stand there and tell everybody how great they are, you know? Because they can't do that. They're going to say thank you if they're there. But you can say, you have really done the right thing here, giving this award to this incredible character, this incredible talent. And uh, it was a pleasure to be able to get up there and tell everybody that uh, he was great and we loved him. So uh, Matt was the funniest human being. I mean, he was hilarious. And at the same time, could be so touching in some of the scenes. You know, uh, it was such a short three years to have him. But, yes, he did say that. He said, I know I'll never be in anything this good again. And uh, I didn't try to talk him out of it, but I did say, but why then? <laughs> why Why do you leave, leave us? And he said, um, I just want to be number one. And I said, you are. I don't care about the billing. <laughs> This is, this is your show. I mean, he was taking off. He was replacing Johnny Carson. You know, he was uh, not replacing him, but taking over for Johnny when uh, he was absent from, from his show. He was uh, doing stand-up comedy. Uh, he, he was very, 
the biggie, you know, and um, he just felt uh, uh, he was, people were, he, he wanted to be the one in the show people reacted to. Because mm-hmm. normally what his, his figure was reacting to the craziness. He was the one reacting. Um, okay, uh, Jamie Klinger walks in and he's reacting hilariously to Jamie, and he wanted to be the one not not to play Klinger, but he wanted to be the one that people were reacting to. With the departure of Stevenson, the producers made the decision to kill off Colonel Henry Blake in an episode that's considered to be one of the best in television history. Mark Freeman. There was a natural evolution of it, which has been written about before, but basically McLean Stevenson was fourth on the call sheet. Alan was first, Wayne was second, Loretta third, and, and, and he wanted his own thing, and NBC was promising him potentially uh, The Tonight Show because he did some guest hosting. And and as Gene and other people had told me, they were kind of inflating his ego of everything's amazing and, and, and you'll be number one wherever you go. So when he decided to leave and they did everything, cast and crew and directors, producers, to convince him not to, not just for the show, but saying this probably isn't the right move for your career. But once it was finalized, they could have had him just disappear uh, kind of like uh, Wayne Rogers, uh, his um, Trapper John leaving the show. You never see him leave the show. It's just right. uh, it's the episode where you introduce BJ. Um, but they, in the talking about it, they thought this is what this is what war is about, and it wasn't to kill him as punishment so McLean could never come back again. <laughs> it was the idea of this is real. This is real. This is a statement. Um, and it was never talked about with anybody, uh, as, as, uh, also any MASH fan will know they, the, the extra pages, which were only one or two and radar just as the one line, um, is, uh, it was given to everybody in Manila envelopes, like a secret spy movie. Uh, and, um, that's the first time they saw the pages. And so everything that's shot is more or less the actors themselves playing the characters still responding to the shock of what they've just been given by the producers of the show. So all the emotion in there, they didn't even have time to think of how to play it. Uh, it was very, it was very natural, um, which is interesting because um, you don't really hear stories about unless it's live television and somebody does something, but in a, a series, be it a sitcom or a drama, you don't get moments like that where they hold the pages back uh, like that in a last-minute decision. And um, one, one other little thing that I think Bert had told me, that when they did it, they got a ton of mail, <laughs> angry mail, um, but they... There was a couple, there was one he even had framed, I believe, but he had kept because it was um, written by this, I think it was a teenage girl, mm. if I have a, my memory correctly. And, and, but it was one of those comments like, you know, now I know what war means. Um, and it, she got it. Uh, and, uh, you know, they stuck by and never regretted their decision. But, but something like that really, really moved them that these characters in your living room that are appearing every week, they, they are connected to you and, and they feel like family for that half an hour or when you think about them. And now you just, you know, killed one of them. So that's tough. Uh, but, the, you know, everyone accepted it and the, and the people who got it really got it. The exit of Stevenson created an opening for another Hollywood veteran, Harry Morgan, who had already appeared on the show in an earlier episode. There's certain people that... that when you do an article or a book or whatever it is and you hear stories about them and you think, I, re- I wish I could have met him. Mm. I was on, I was on the match set once and he was walking off from a scene and he did this little jump towards me, like, you know, gotcha kind of thing. And I was, you know, whatever, eight or nine. And, uh, I, it's a nothing moment, but obviously I remember it years and decades later, uh, just the playfulness to him. Um, but, to Loretta, he was like a, a, a father figure. Um, she just talks 
about him in, in amazing ways. He had uh, a lot of industry friends because he had been in the industry since like the 40s. And um, I know Ralph Bellamy would come by. I was one friend that's off the top of my head. So he, so these industry veterans would come in, and obviously, and as I said, he was very good friends with them. And he was not. He was coming out of off of Dragnet, I believe. Right? He wasn't. He enjoyed and respected and was appreciative of everything the show brought him uh, and the opportunities the show gave him. And as the senior. In terms of age in the cast, he had experience they didn't have, and with his personality, uh, it just created an environment where, to me, kind of felt like the grandfather, that uh, the good grandfather that you want to spend time. Mm. With Gelbart and company aware of Roger's desires, they began to explore other opportunities, including Mike Farrell, who had done the interns with Broderick Crawford and The Man in the City with Anthony Quinn. I was invited to meet Larry and Gene and Bert and we just talked they had they were they were Wayne had determined he was going to leave or was threatening to leave and they weren't sure if their studio was going to be able to meet his um, contract uh, requirements so they decided they would reach out to some people and see if they you know they could come up with somebody to replace him if that was the case if that if that became necessary so when it when it became very pretty clear that they were going to have to replace him, they asked me and I don't know how many others uh, to come in and meet. And at that time, um, I was uh, I was under contract at Universal. I had done a television series with Tony Quinn, and um, that was one of one of the wonderful experiences I'd had. And prior to that, I'd done one with Rod Crawford, who was another you know, it was another powerful experience in, in many ways and uh, <laughs> and and universal kept looking for something for me and they wanted me to do this and wanted me to do that and we kept disagreeing and t- and then um, uh this meeting came over came along for mash and i said up to my agent i said can i do this i'm under contract and he said having a meeting is not going to hurt so i didn't I, I didn't frankly know the show i had heard of it I didn't know Bert was associated with it. Um, I went, uh, I may have told you this story. I, 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 I was going to go out to dinner with a friend and I went to pick him up and he said, well, I can't go yet. I've got to watch MASH. And I said, come on, man. He said, no, no, I got to finish watching MASH. And uh, so I went in and we sat and I, I remember seeing a scene with Gary uh, Radar, Gary Berghoff, in which he was doing that character and he was, you know, being zeroed in from all sides by people. Everybody wanted him and the the bombs were going off and the gunfire was happening and the wounded were coming in and the choppers and this and that. And he was this kid, this naive kid, and he was trying to keep it all together. And I remember being knocked out. I thought, by God, that is really amazing that show and then this cast the, the way they're doing this so i it, it sort of emblazoned itself on my memory and uh, but it was a show that was already going on and they had their cast so there was no nothing that could be done about it from my point of view and then uh uh when i was still in the contract universal uh producer called me and he said i've got a television series i'd like uh, i'd like you to to do if and I said, well, can I see the script? And he said, sure. And he sent it to me. And it was, as you suggest, it was a, a kind of a joke show. It was, a, you know, so so many jokes per page sitcom that had no heart at all. And I I said, gee, you know, it's very nice of you to think of me, but thank you, but no, thank you. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I mean, no, thank you. And he said, you're turning down the lead in a television series. And I said, yeah. And he said, why? And I said, I didn't want to tell him I thought his show was stupid. So I said, well, it's not MASH. (laughs) He kind of looked at me like he didn't know what I was talking about. And, you know, but I'll never forget that because it was some months later that the call came to go over and have this meeting. And I thought, God, (laughs) God, (laughs) could it could it be possible? Um, 
and uh, I met the guys, and I'd been around. I'd been under contract. I'd done these series, I'd stuff, but I was as nervous as a cat. I thought I, I, I didn't kind of want to trip over my feet or slobber, but I thought this was, you know, manna from heaven. And uh, and they uh, they were just as sweet. And I, the one thing I said was, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, I understand whether or not this is going to work out is a big, big uh, question, but I wouldn't be interested in coming in and playing Trapper John and stepping into Wayne's boots and just saying, you know, new, new actor playing Tra- Trapper John. And they said, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. We understand that would be, that would be an insult to the audience. Um, but this is the military. People die. People, you know, are transferred out. So we can we can have somebody transfer in. Once he got the role, Farrell was understandably concerned about joining a cast that had been together for three seasons. But a meeting with Alan Alda helped put those concerns to rest. I got a call saying, would you have dinner with me? And I said, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. And we sat and talked and talked and talked about his view of the show, about what he hoped for the show, about uh, just you know getting us in sync. And it was it was it was uh, it was like magical time just uh, talking to this guy about what he viewed as the possibilities that this show presented in terms of reaching an audience about something that was significant in in life and meaningful. And uh, it it was, uh, so it calmed my fears because I felt very worried that because I knew they had all gotten along, but you know, they were storied as being um, friends. And I thought there's the possibility that this jerk coming in, to taking the place of one of their brethren is going to be um, not welcome. So Alan's taking the time to have dinner with me calmed much of that. But it was the next morning when I went to work, um, I walked on the set on stage nine, and uh, first person that came up to me was Gary Berghoff, stuck out his hand, said, welcome, happy to have you with us. Then came Loretta and Jamie and Bill and, uh, and and Larry, and it was just it was just uh, fabulous, just fabulous. Mark Freeman says the chemistry between Farrell and Aldo was clear right away. You introduce a new actor, and you need chemistry. So there's first of all, do the people like each other, and and you can see that on screen. Uh, the second thing is is Mike was Mike was so looked at the show with such reverence going into it. Um, that he he was at somebody's house and he saw it in the background and he was watching it, started to watch it, but he always, he never thought, I'm going to be on this show. He just thought, this is one of the best shows on television. And uh, Bert apparently knew his work and Bert reached out to him. And so when somebody comes to you and says, hey, do you want the keys to the kingdom? You want to come on in? Uh, he, he He remains grateful to, to this day, and he loves to talk about the show, um, and he's a very sweet man, and uh, never has anything bad to say about anybody, and just has these great memories. Once he joined the show, Mike Farrell was surprised to find that the writers encouraged input from actors, which was pretty rare at the time. Mark Freeman. In the typical television setup, uh, the writer doesn't come to the set, really, um, they didn't have the um, video villages at the time, so they are, they're told what to do. Here's the script. Director says, action, you do what you want. But this was one of the early examples of a show willing to listen to input from the actors of things they could do. What about if I do this? Or uh, you do it the way the director wants, and then you kind of do, can I do one for me? Uh, which you'll see a lot of um, very successful programming or even actors telling stories will talk about. And it's not an ego diva thing. It's just there are different ways to interpret a line of dialogue or different movements you can make while doing that line of dialogue. And 
as a collaborative process, which MASH clearly was, they were very open to that, and not doing crazy improvisational stuff, uh, but they were very open to ideas that forwarded the story, the character, whatever was in the moment. Uh, and it's a hard thing to do, but but they did it well. And, and again, a lot of classic shows do it well. Jamie Farr concurs with that assessment of the openness of the writers. Both Mike and I are two of the luckiest actors in the world because, <laughs> as he, t- he said, he said, come on a show like that, that that's a hit with that kind of writing and, and the, the cast members. And me, too. I mean, I, I the second year. Uh, it was the third year that they put me under contract that I became a regular. And I forgot when Mike came in. Was it the third or the fourth year? I think it was the fourth season, yeah. Fourth season. Well, you know, the very uh, uh, one of the very first shows that I did when I got under contract was the show that Harry Morgan came on as the crazy general. The, uh, oh, the, yes. The, the, the general, general flipped, flipped it down. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was a lucky thing. But uh, Mike is absolutely correct. It, uh, the writers were wonderful. Uh, the directors, uh, the uh, the producers, the cast members, uh, all the atmosphere. Uh, that, you know, we knew the names of all of the ones like Kelly Nakahara and and uh, Dennis Troy, Roy Goldman, Jeff Maxwell, who was Igor the chef. I mean, they were all absolutely wonderful. It was a perfect cast. That willingness to take the concerns of actors into account was crucial to Loretta Swit as the role of Margaret Houlihan transitioned through the years. With Margaret, I have to say, uh, it took a while to... Um, get her honed down to what I felt I wanted to say with that character. And uh, fortunately, I was blessed with writers who uh, paid attention to me. You know, they didn't, uh, oh, you know, don't listen to the girl. She's only a female or whatever. Um, so eventually it got to, I felt, where where I wanted to be with the character and uh, I think I'm rewarded by the mail that says I'm a nurse because of you. I wanted her to be my my thing, my mantra when I took the role was, I intend to be the best damn head nurse in Korea. That's my goal. And, you know, in, in fact, in order to do that, I had to work very hard on getting away from the... Um, silly kind of comedic empty thing that we had with Frank Burns, you know, both Larry and Liv and I, we, you know, we were, we were being treated as comic relief for the first couple of seasons. And, and it wasn't working for us because they were writing my characters smarter, wiser. And she was of course, very good at her job. He was being touted as inept as a doctor as a surgeon, and there's no compatibility there for Margaret, who admired Hawkeye and Trapper in the beginning, and then DJ, for their skills. How can she hook up with a guy who, number one, is married, there's no future there, and he's uh, he's uh, a joke in camp, he's a ninny, he's, and he's a worthless doctor, so... So what what is holding her there? You know, he's not tall, dark, and handsome with shoulders. He doesn't outrank her. I mean, there's no... So finally, we were able to sit down and say, we've, we've got to fix this. Alan Alda appeared on the MASH Matters podcast with Jeff Maxwell, who played Private Igor and Ryan Patrick. And Alda said that uh, Larry Linville also made the most of an increasingly difficult role. He good-naturedly played it no matter how bizarre they let the character be. But then I think finally it was a little too much and he wanted to change it. And they they wound up playing this, writing the same scene many times over between him and Hot Lips. And there's only so many times you can do that kind of a scene. And Loretta was emerging from that because she was determined to make her character more of a three-dimensional person. Mm-hmm. And I, I helped where I could whenever I wrote the show to try to find more sides to her and to everybody else. Max Klinger, too. It seemed important to me that there was more about him that we should know than that he wore dresses to get out of the army. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think 
the other writers on the show felt the same way and and his character and i think he contributed to it his character had many more sides to it certainly than when he started which just was a one-dimensional joke Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was a wonderful development of the character and then Good for the show. Alan Alda on our salute to the MASH 50th anniversary, which continues after this on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey! Holy cow! Things always this calm around here? It's the only war in town. I gotta get it back. Call an MP. Hey, MP! Radar! Radar! If you can keep your head while all about you are losing theirs, and you probably haven't checked with your answering service. Rudyard Kipling. (laughs) Who that man a lady in the balcony? Hey, listen, that jeep is government property. So are you. I never thought of it that way. I'm just a little confused. Hawkeye, and don't let a little confusion throw you, Captain. BJ. One of the first things you learn over here, BJ, is that insanity is no worse than the common cold. Hmm. How are we going to get back? We don't got any wheels. Here is the eminent Captain Honeycutt, fresh from the U.S. of A. And you and I are talking about cars. Let us welcome yon weary traveler with food and drink. Kipling? Auto Club. <laughs> hey, hey, wait a minute. I can't go in there. Pish, Tosh. Oh, come on, I'm just a corporal. You think that kept Hitler out of the officers' club? <laughs> yeah, I really wouldn't want to get him into any trouble. No problem. Just let me have some of your costume jewelry. Uh, I've only had five weeks of indoctrination. Is this what they call a field promotion? For being brave and nearsighted above and beyond the call. How does a successful show not only survive cast changes, but find a way to thrive under those circumstances? Loretta Swit explains that it was because the creators didn't try to replace the actors, but saw change as an opportunity to tell new stories. You could not replace McLean Stevenson, but what you can do is get a Harry Morgan bringing in his one in a zillion personality uh, talent. Here was the guy who could be uh, uh, funny, but he could also be one of the guys that get drunk with them. Uh, be my father figure or scold me, yell at me, or wait. I mean, he could do it all. And it gave us all a shot in the arm because here we were positioning to react to a new a new guy. And we couldn't act, we couldn't be the same characters as we were with Mac. When Larry Linville decided to leave, and he had done a wonderful job, but it was an impossible character ultimately mm-hmm. to play. And, and Alan and I had become uncomfortable by that time with the idea of making fun of, of somebody who may be crazy. So we, we we were all, Larry and Alan and I and the rest of everybody trying to figure out how to how to work this. And, Al, and Larry finally said, you know what, I think I need to move on. I've, I've done everything I can do with this character. And then Bird came over to us one day and he said, after Larry had left, I've got a guy that's going to pin your ears back. <laughs> he's uh, he's going to be every bit as surge, uh, good a surgeon as you two. And he's going to be your, your intellectual match and a challenge because he's going to be just the exact opposite <laughs> of the two of you. And it was David Ogden Stiers, and it was, I got to say, it was love at first sight. We, David was just brilliant, and it was an exa- example of what you just said, Loretta, had talked about. That they had the in, the intelligence, the Gene, and by that time Larry was gone, but Gene and, and Bert said, oh yeah, no, we've got to do this the right way, and Man, did they ever. A hallmark of MASH was also the ability to tell real stories based on the experiences of those who were there. Mike Farrell. Connie Isay was a surgical nurse who was a regular with us. She was there every day and stood in as a as a as uh, an extra or a background player. But Connie made sure that we did the... Uh, the um, surgical techniques properly. We handled things, the procedures appropriately. 
And we had Walt Dischel, the doctor, was our technical, medical technical advisor, but Connie was the same. And um, Walt would look at the scripts and make sure the scripts were right. And periodically, I guess he'd talk if we asked him about a particular procedure, one or another. But Connie was there every day, and it was uh, she was just uh, an extraordinarily um, thoughtful, decent woman. For Loretta Swit, a crucial element in the story was that all of the nurses who served in Korea were volunteers. You know, the women were heroes beyond. You know, I'm not saying everybody who was drafted wasn't a hero. Anybody, a veteran, and, and my explanation, which I always quote, a veteran is someone who at one time or other in their life has written an, a blank check made out to the United States of America for the sum of up to and including their lives. You have given your life. You have said, I'm willing to die for my country. And this is a hero. This is a veteran. And that's uh, that's the honor. And so you have these women volunteering to be in a place on the planet that is hotter than anywhere else in the summer and colder than anywhere else in the winter. And you have uh, a, a written record that the cause of death during the Korean conflict was, number one, frostbite. Number two, snakebite. Number three, the war. Mm. Now, that tells you what kind of conditions they were working in uh, the, the difficulty of standing in blood for 18 hours trying to patch young bodies together. Uh, the, uh, there was one totally destructive, painful line that we had. I mean, we are sewing bodies together that are young, that are uh, well, uh, too, uh, younger, just barely young enough, uh, old enough, just, just barely old enough to shave. We're trying to patch bodies together. Uh, of kids just old enough to shave. And it, you know, it was psychologically, can you imagine what it did for the doctors and nurses? And here, these women volunteered to do that, to be there, to do it. And they worked the same long hours. They said, you know, and it, yeah, I, I, it was a privilege to play all of us, to play those people. What what heroes, geez, you know, what valor. Next week in the second half of our special salute to MASH, Mike Farrell has the story of a legendary on-set practical joke. The series welcomes more new cast members, and Ed Begley Jr. and Lynn Marie Stewart discuss their experiences appearing on the show. And a series finale that reaches the largest audience in the history of scripted television. As we salute 50 years of MASH again next week, on Downtown, the podcast.